Well, good morning and uh, happy Easter. He is risen. Amen. Well, welcome uh, to the Brookside campus of Christ Community Church. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here, and we're just so thrilled that you have chosen to join us this morning on Easter and to celebrate the best news um, in the history of the world, and that is the resurrection uh, of Jesus. And so we're just thrilled that you're here. So glad that, uh, that we get to celebrate together this, this the best news of all, um, the resurrection of Jesus uh, this morning. And we're going to be looking at this uh, chapter of Matthew, chapter 28. Um, if you are a kid and you are with us in our service, we love having kids with us in our service, we have these uh, Kid Connect sheets that will help you follow along during the message. And uh, if you don't have one of those, um, feel free, uh, kids, to get up and grab one. They're in between these two pillars in the back. You'll see them sitting there if you haven't grabbed one of those already. So feel free to do that. Um, and as we begin our time this morning uh, of looking at uh, this passage together, I actually wanted to start off um, with a little bit of a moment of, of confession, um, just for me, not for you, so don't worry, uh, just a little confession moment, and that is, um, I just want to confess that I am, I'm afraid of heights. And, and I don't know if any of you can relate to this, if you're, you're afraid of heights. Actually, not, not this high. It doesn't bother me. This is fine. I'm fine up here. Um, but I'm afraid of heights. I'm an Eagle Scout. You would think Eagle Scouts, you shouldn't be afraid of heights. But honestly, I don't even like getting up on the ladder to clean the gutters. I'd, I'd rather not do it. I force myself to do it. But I do not like heights. And, and actually, in, in my defense— it's not really the heights so much that bother me. It's more of the prospect of, of falling from them that really, that really gets to me. Um, that's the real issue. But in, in fact, I realized a few years ago that I'm actually far more afraid of heights than I am of what people think of me. And, and this came home to me when we were uh, in the process of renovating this building. Um, we as a congregation were able to, to acquire this building about two years ago, and one of the, the major renovations that was needed was a replacement of the steeple that you see out here. And, uh, and so during this time, they put a massive scaffolding all the way up to the top of this. I actually have a picture of it here. You can see what the, the scaffolding looked like. And, and while this was there, I, there's this kind of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to climb to the top of the scaffolding and, and see from one of the highest points in, in Brookside, the top of our steeple here. And so I thought, how could I, how could I pass up this moment? And so one uh, Friday afternoon, it was a sunny, warm Friday afternoon, uh, me and my wife Rachel and one of our congregation members, uh, Dan, decided we're going to make the trek to the top of the steeple. Well, I will tell you right now, I, I didn't make it uh, to the top. Um, with each step up this scaffolding, and I don't know if it looks like in the picture, it, it maybe looks sturdier than it felt, uh, but as, with each step I climbed, uh, and I was getting further and further away from that nice, safe ground, uh, my hands started sweating, my heart started beating faster, and suddenly all of my inhibitions about seeming like a scaredy cat in front of my wife and congregation member just disappeared, and I just stopped. And I wasn't going to go any higher. Uh, it was about maybe a third of the way up um, that, that I got. And um, Rachel and Dan kind of, they kept going. I didn't say anything at first. I mumbled something, but I'm going to stay here for a minute or something. And they kept going. Um, but I was frozen. And uh, it was obviously that I wasn't going to go anywhere. And, and I wasn't frozen that kind of fun, like, I want to build a snowman kind of frozen. It was like... <laughs> I was frozen in fear, and, and Rachel mercifully could see there was no way I was going any higher, and so she, she stopped and said, Dan, why don't you, you go on ahead? Um, and after what seemed to me like probably several years of standing there, uh, gripping the, <clears throat> the railing, 
Dan finally made his way back down, and, and then I kind of, you know, turned and shifted and, and started making my way back down. And, and finally, when we reached the ground, I sort of felt like someone who had been stuck on a ship during a hurricane. I was just so glad to be back on solid ground once again. Now, we can laugh at a story like this, right? Because the reality was I wasn't really in that grave of danger. I mean, workmen were going up and down this thing all the time. It was solid. It was safe. Um, and in the end, everything turned out fine. So I can look back on this and laugh. I wouldn't want to go up it again, I don't think. Um, but we can look back on it and laugh because it all turned out okay. However, there are many times where this isn't the case. And there are many times when our fear is justified. In fact, kids, you know that sometimes us as adults can, can kind of make light of the things that you're afraid of. <laughs> but if we were really honest, we're a lot more afraid than sometimes we want to admit to you. And we face the fear of, of losing someone we love, or the fear in the moment when the doctor says, I think you really need to get that checked out. Let's see if we can book an appointment with a specialist. Fear of, of rejection, fear of failure, fear of just of messing it all up. And there are also times when, when our fears literally become living nightmares as they did for our community last Sunday afternoon. I mean, can you imagine something like this happening in Kansas City, uh, international news unfolding in our, in our neighborhood as three innocent people are gunned down simply out of hate? Jeremiah and Mona Enna, who are part of our Brookside congregation here and lead the Culture House, knew 14-year-old Reed Underwood as he was active in the drama programs that they host there at the Culture House. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're Jewish or not, whether you're Christian or not, you can't watch a story like that unfold without feeling heartache and outrage and fear. And and no matter who you are, every one of us knows what it's like to be afraid. So this morning, let's talk about fear. But, But before we do that, let's pause and pray. So Lord Jesus, we are here today to celebrate the victory, your victory over death and sin and all that is broken in our world. And yet we find ourselves in a world that still scares us, one that still hurts us. And so God, we pray for these families that have been torn apart by senseless hate. We pray that you would comfort them, that you would surround them with people who love them, who provide them hope and love. Lord, help us to believe that you will make all this right. That this day, that resurrection day, that Easter is the guarantee that you will make it all right. Father, we pray that you would do this through Jesus. And help us with our fears. Fears that are more numerous than the people who are in this room. Show us how the resurrection is the death of all of our fears. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, I know it may seem kind of odd maybe to be talking about fear on Easter Sunday. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about Easter being a scary story or a scary day. Uh, I don't know if anyone here is afraid of Easter. I mean, maybe you're afraid if, if you really don't like going to church, which, which maybe that might be some of you here this morning. Uh, or maybe if you have uh, what's called leporophobia, which is the fear of bunnies. So maybe those things would make you uh, fearful of Easter. But when you look at the Bible— The story of Easter is actually a really scary story. 
It's filled with fear. In Matthew, that one of the eyewitnesses who wrote his account down for us, one of Jesus' first disciples, he writes down his experience of these events. And, and we read part of that a moment ago. Kylie read for us verses 1 through 10 of Matthew chapter 28. But as you read the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, everyone is afraid. The soldiers are afraid. The religious leaders are afraid. Even after his glorious resurrection, fear is everywhere. And so today we gather to proclaim the resurrection, and while our fears remain and our hearts continue to hurt, we're going to see one thing loud and clear in this text that's going to come home to us, and that is that the resurrection is the death of fear. The resurrection is the death of fear. So so first we're going to see that the resurrection is indeed a story of great fear, And then we're going to see how the resurrection destroys fear. So the resurrection, it's a story full of fear. And and, and the language of fear is all over this passage. In fact, the, the fear begins back in chapter 27 with Jesus dying on the cross. And I just want you to hear these verses from the final moments of Jesus on the cross. This is what Matthew records. He says, At that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split, and the tombs broke open. And when the centurion who and those who were with him guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Now, Imagine, if you can for a moment, that you are that centurion. You're one of the soldiers there at the cross, tasked with executing prisoners in the first century Rome. You know, it's maybe not a great gig, but hey, you know, it paid the bills, and it was probably better to be on the executing side than on the side of being executed, which is probably the alternative for them if they chose not to take that job. And these soldiers may have known something about Jesus— But probably to them, he was mostly just one more revolutionary who foolishly tried to challenge the brutal iron rule of Rome and lost. But then something happens, something dark, something unexpected, something fearful. Darkness covers the sky, the text says. Have you ever been in Kansas City on one of those afternoons where a thunderstorm kind of rolls in in the middle of the day and all of a sudden it's like 2 in the afternoon but it looks like it's about 6.30 at night? Darkness just covers the sky. And the darkness like this has been persisting for about three hours when the prisoner Jesus cries out. And at that moment there's an earthquake, tombs break open, and these soldiers are starting to wonder if executing this guy maybe wasn't the best choice after all. They are terrified, and I bet when it came to Sunday morning, they are still terrified. Did they know about rumors of a resurrection? Because resurrection would not be good news for the people who had just killed Jesus, right? (laughs) If you had just killed someone and now they have come back to life, this is not good news for you. They had a lot to lose if the resurrection was true. But there's another group of people besides the soldiers that had even more to lose if the resurrection was true, and that's the religious leaders. Because at the end of chapter 27, Matthew tells us what the religious leaders were doing on Saturday while Jesus' body was laying in the tomb. And while the word fear isn't specifically used, listen to these verses. The whole scene is thick 
with fear. This is the end of Matthew chapter 27. It says, The next day, this is Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees, these religious leaders, went to Pilate, the Roman governor, and they said, Sir, we remember that while Jesus was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. So give the order, Pilate, for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. They're fearful. What if someone tries to take the body? What if it makes it appear that he's been raised from the dead? This is what they say. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. And take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. And so they went and made a tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. You see, the religious leaders knew that dead people tend to stay dead. This is our experience of dead people. They don't usually come back alive. But they were fearful that Jesus' followers would try to make it look as though he had been raised from the dead. And if Jesus really was raised from the dead, they stood to lose everything, their power, their image, their control. There was a lot at stake for these religious leaders in making sure that Jesus stayed dead and that people knew that he was dead. So in their fear and their paranoia, they pled with the Roman officials to make a guard posted and to make the tomb as secure as possible. But it's no use. If the bonds of death can't hold Jesus, a big rock and a few soldiers aren't going to slow him down much. Then, of course, the soldiers nor the religious leaders were actually expecting Jesus to rise. They were more worried about his followers making it look that way. Because dead people tend to stay dead, don't they? But what happens when his body is gone? The religious leaders panic. Their worst fears are coming true. And so they bribe the guards. Matthew chapter 28 tells us. They say to the, the guards, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. And so they took money and they did as they were directed. And this story, Matthew tells us, has been spread among the Jews to this day. The religious leaders were afraid of being found out. Jesus threatened everything about their corrupt way of life, and they would do anything to maintain their image. They had a lot to lose if this was true. And maybe some of you this morning feel the same way. If you were really honest, that you feel like if the story of Jesus were actually true, if the resurrection were true, things in your life would have to be different that you'd have to be accountable. Because anybody who, who dies and comes back to life, you just can't ignore someone who does that. But Jesus is a lot easier to deal with if we can just ignore him. Matthew shows us, writing shortly after these events, that there are eyewitnesses who are still alive. And yet, even then, the body can't be found. This is the problem. The reason they have to make up a story with the Roman soldiers about the body being stolen is because there is no body, right? If they wanted to dispel the, the, the rumor, right, couldn't they just show everyone the corpse? Look, here, he actually is dead. Here's the body. Why don't they? Because there is no corpse to be shown. Is it circumstantial evidence? Of course, but you still have to explain the empty tomb. Now, obviously, the story that they want us to believe, the religious leaders, is, well, the, the disciples took it. But really? I mean, it's a handful of kind of 
fishermen and tax collectors about to kind of pull off an Ocean Eleven's kind of break into the tomb against the Roman soldiers who are posted there? Really? And why would they take the body? They didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead either. Because even in the Gospels, as you look at, I mean, Jesus tells them multiple times, I'm going to die, and after three days I'm going to rise from the dead. But every time, they're really confused, they don't get it, and they have no idea what Jesus is talking about. They are not expecting him to rise again. And besides, even if they did have this memory of, well, didn't Jesus say something about rising from the dead? Maybe we should go and take his body and steal it. But that just doesn't fit at all with who Jesus is and what he taught. I mean, can you imagine Jesus, he's constantly teaching about how they need to be honest and, and, and trustworthy people, people of humble sacrifice and love. And then Jesus kind of pulls him off to the side and says, oh, guys, by the way, I'm going to get killed, but steal my body and make it seem like I rose again from the dead. It, it, it just doesn't fit with anything that Jesus taught about, about how he'd want to start this movement. You know, trustworthiness, honesty, fearlessness, selflessness. And by the way, pull off a huge deception to make everyone believe it. But I think that the, one of the greatest hints of the, of the veracity of the resurrection this morning it, is you. The fact that you, you are sitting here this morning in a church 2,000 years later points to the fact that something happened that day. Something happened. We don't know, maybe you don't know exactly what, but something happened. Something that started a global movement that resulted in you sitting here in the church this morning, 2,000 years later. I mean, disciples are shown in this text. This is one of the reasons why I, I believe that these texts are, are trustworthy is because the disciples are shown to be absolute fearful cowards locked up in a room alone, and then three days later, they're willing to die for Jesus, and they're boldly proclaiming the resurrection. What, what happened in between Saturday and Monday that made that kind of a transformation and most of those early church leaders are murdered for what they believed. Would you die for something that you knew to be a lie? The tomb was empty and the religious leaders scramble. They are afraid of being found out. I mean, really, who can blame them, right? At this point. But perhaps more afraid than even the soldiers or the religious leaders are Jesus' followers. The people who have given everything to follow Jesus over, over the last three years of their life, they've given up massive amounts of, of, of relationship and opportunity to follow him. And, and all we know about Saturday is that they stayed behind locked doors. Because right, they could only assume that they were next. That if their leader, who was considered an insurrectionist, was crucified on the cross, that, that they, it was just a matter of time before Rome was coming for them. And so they cowered. Everything that they believed in, everything they hoped for, everything they'd given up their, their lives to follow, now for someone who was dead. Just another failed Messiah. They lost their relationships, their identity, their sense of security, any sense of purpose that they had. And they were afraid it was all for nothing. Can you imagine that? You'd, you'd given everything. You'd, you'd left your job of three years. Now it's what was that all for? And it's the women who are there first. And they're still grieving early on Sunday morning. 
And think about that. It's the women who go to the tomb first. Now, in the first century, in a culture that, that devalued women, uh, who's in a culture where women's testimony couldn't even be passable in a court of law, if you were going to make up a story about Jesus rising from the dead, you would not put women as the first one to see it. You, you wouldn't do it. Because they, they, they were considered untrustworthy. And yet, look at what the text says. The women are there. An angel stands before them. An angel so terrifying that the guards, professional soldiers who have faced battle, they faint when they see him. And the angel says to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Now come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to Dell's disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. He said, I'm so glad to see you. And they came and they took hold of his feet. Notice that they took hold of his feet. They touched him. This isn't a ghost. They had a category for ghosts, for spirits, for visions. This is not what they're seeing. They are falling at the feet of a person who they can touch. They take hold of his feet and they worship him. Also don't miss the fact they worship him. They, as Jewish women who are monotheists, fall on the ground and they worship someone who is a person who they've now come to believe is God in the flesh. And Jesus accepts their worship. He doesn't say, no, 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 don't, don't worship me, I'm not God. He welcomes their worship. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Do you see the fear in this text? There's a lot of fear here. I think on Easter, you know, we see the, the pastel colors, the, the, uh, the painted eggs, the Cadbury cream eggs, which are absolutely delicious. But that's not what's in this story. This is a story full of fear. I mean, even if you like The Walking Dead, and, you know, and I'm a fan, no one actually wants to be caught in a moment like this. Dead people stay dead. And this was terrifying when they were faced with a person they knew was dead and is now standing before them alive. But if it's true, scary or not, the resurrection is the fear, or rather is the death of fear. Because if we really believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, it marks the end of all of our fears For if we believe even some of our greatest fears, three of our greatest fears, the fears that they struggled with, those fears lose all of their power. The the, the fear of what we've done, the, the fear of being found out, and the fear of it all being for nothing. The resurrection is the death of all of those fears. So let's take a look. First, the resurrection is the death of the fear of what we've done. Every one of us has those moments in our life that, that we, would, we would do anything to undo, that, that we would give anything to go back and be able to, to take those words back or, or undo that decision. As people, we are all too familiar with the feeling, with the emotion of regret. 
I think deep down, every one of us has a creeping sense that, that one day, somehow, we will be accountable for what we've done. That somehow, even those things that we are sure that no one else knows about will somehow be exposed. However, the resurrection replaces the fear of regret with the promise of forgiveness. The resurrection replaces the fear of regret with the promise of forgiveness. Resurrection is the death of fear. So what are you afraid of? The resurrection means that that Jesus not only forgives sin, but that he can actually fix what you've destroyed, that he can restore what you've lost, that he can reconcile who you've alienated, and he can make beautiful what you have made ugly. If you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, I'm so glad that you're here. And I know that you have good reasons for, for not believing, for doubting the resurrection. In fact, later in this text, it's going to say that, and some of them doubt it. I mean, this isn't an easy thing to believe. But do you see what you're giving up? Choosing a life of fear over a life of hope. You always be afraid. Why not try Jesus? Not try, believe, trust. Turn away from the sins that you will think will satisfy. I mean, how many times have those things just let you down again and again? Come to Jesus and just see what he does. Give him a chance. If you are a Christian, do you believe that you've been really forgiven? Do you believe that Jesus really can heal, reconcile, redeem, make beautiful, even your most crushing and horrible regrets? What would it look like for you you to give those things completely to him? What would it look like for you to live without fear of those things anymore? But the thing is, we're not just afraid of, of what we've done. We're, we're also afraid of, of who we are. Or, or sometimes who, of who we aren't, that we know we should be, right? We, we're, we're afraid of being found out. Found out that we aren't really as smart, that we, that we aren't really as pretty or gifted or wealthy or successful or, or kind or, or whatever. We, you have that thing that, that you want people to think of you And there's this fear that someday everyone's going to find out that that really you've just been putting on a show all this time, that you aren't really all that you've made yourself out to be. Uh, Often in this regard, I feel like I can relate to to George Costanza uh, from Seinfeld. Uh, There's a a great scene in one of my favorite episodes where, where someone comes to George and he says, George, I've been living a lie. And George says, one? Only one? I'm living like 20. Um, I, I can relate to that. You, you feel this at times, that we feel like we're living lies, that there's this mask, or, or that we're just kind of trying to hold things together, and then at any moment it could just kind of crumble, and people are going to see who we really are. The sphere of being found out, it goes all the way back to the garden. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You see, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, deciding that that they could be happy without him, the immediate result was a fear of being found out, a fear of being exposed. The first thing they do is they hide. They hide. You see, the resurrection replaces our fear of being found out with the hope of being truly known and loved, 
of being truly accepted. The resurrection replaces our fear of being found out with the hope of truly being known, truly being accepted. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we no longer have anything left to prove. The resurrection means that we are now accepted on the basis of what Jesus has accomplished and that everything that is true of Jesus is now true of you when you trust him. As the great reformer Martin Luther put it, for I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is there I shall be also. Amen. You see, you no longer have to save face or maintain power or earn approval. And the great thing about that is that it frees you to actually focus on and genuinely enjoy other people. Something amazing happens when you feel truly known and accepted. You're able to focus on and enjoy other people in a way that you probably never thought possible. And as one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, he's a literary scholar and Christian apologist. Um, He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He, He actually says this leads to genuine humility. And I love how he says this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, don't imagine that if you meet a really humble person, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a greasy, swarmy sort of person who is telling you, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. And if you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seemed to enjoy life so easily. Lewis says he will not be thinking of humility. He will not be thinking of himself at all. See, the power of the gospel is that it frees you from a crushing self-interest and lets you genuinely love and enjoy other people. Because in the gospel, we're completely known and completely loved. And that is the most powerful combination in the world because just being loved without being known, that's superficial. (laughs) Anyone can say they love you if they don't really know you. On the other hand, just being known without being loved is terrifying. If someone knows the deepest, darkest, most broken, sad, painful parts of your life and they don't love you, that's really scary. But to be known and loved, wow. Imagine what that would do to your relationships. You see, Jesus knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself and he loves you. Imagine what that deep sort of humility and confidence would do to your relationships. It would utterly transform them. You would be able to take criticism without either being despairing or getting angry. You'd actually be able to give criticism and encouragement to other people without any kind of ulterior motives, except for wanting to see their good, to see them become better, to see them become all that God had made them to be. Finally, One of our greatest fears as human beings is summed up in the question, did I really matter? Did my life really count for something? I think think especially as we get older and as we we move toward retirement, toward later in life, we we begin to ask this question, did did all of that raising a family and and investing in this company and and all that, did it really matter? Does it really matter? And people have been asking this question for thousands of years and have felt the despair when the answer so often seems to come back, no, it it didn't matter. 
As one person put it this way, surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so the other dies. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. Now that wasn't Jean-Paul Sartre. (laughs) That wasn't Death Cab for Cutie. Um, That actually is the Bible. That is from the book of Ecclesiastes, where the author is agonizing over the meaninglessness of life that we all feel at times. But you see, the resurrection replaces the fear of meaninglessness with the promise of purpose. The resurrection replaces the fear of meaninglessness with the promise of purpose. Jesus' followers gave up everything, and now he's dead. But now he's standing there before them, alive again. And four times in this passage, they're told to go. He sends them on mission to do something, to carry out his mission of love and redemption in the world. They're given purpose, and not just purpose for today, but because if Jesus was resurrected, this means that we can be resurrected too. And if we can be resurrected, then our lives don't just matter for now, they matter for forever. You see, what you do, how you live, how you work, how you study, who you're friends with, the choices you make, it all matters. It doesn't just end It it, it all matters, and the best of what is done in faith and joy and in service of Christ will last forever. And while that still scares us, I, I hope that scares you, it scares me a little bit, isn't it what we all long for? For our lives to really make a difference? For our legacy, for, for our name to be known? It will be known. God knows it. He knows it forever. Your work is not in vain. And if it does matter, then are you living as if it does matter? See, the resurrection is the death of fear. Fear and death were introduced in the garden, but fear and death were banished forever in a cemetery. We don't usually think of cemeteries as places of hope, but they are. A cemetery represents not just death, not just the way it's not supposed to be, but every cemetery is a representation of hope. The resurrection is coming. That's why we remember, we preserve the memory of the dead, because one day they will be raised. The resurrection replaces the fear of death and loneliness with the promise of never-ending life and relationship. Jesus says to us at the end of this chapter, I am with you always to the end of the age. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And not even death can separate him from you if you place your trust in him. The author of the book of Hebrews, which we've been studying together as a church family uh, since the first of the year, puts it this way. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, so the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could Jesus die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who live their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Jesus has broken the power of devil who held the power of death, and he has set those free from the power of death. Jesus' resurrection was the end of death. Jesus trampled over death by death. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection 
is the death of fear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that the resurrection is the death of fear. That, that, that even though fears press in all around us, that we know the ultimate fear, the fear of death, has been dealt with once and for all. And that the greatest threat that anyone can pose to us, and that is the threat of taking our lives from us, is now basically an empty one. Because you have been raised from the dead and you have promised that as we place our trust in you, the same thing will happen for us one day. We praise you. We rejoice in you, the resurrected one. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in celebrating communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we also declare our hope of resurrection. Every time we eat the Lord's Supper together, we remember both his death as well as the coming resurrection. In communion, we say that my fears, though they still remain a present reality, have been definitively dealt with and will one day be completely banished, only a distant memory, a faint dream, barely remembered. So we celebrate this morning in communion as a church family, and as we do that, we'll also have people available to pray with you. Maybe there's something that you feel afraid of that is just crushing you with fear. I invite you to spend some time. Go to seek out prayer with, with some of the folks we'll have back here um, near the sound booth. They would love to pray with you. As we celebrate communion, we celebrate as a tangible reminder of the good news of the gospel, a good news that we can taste and touch and see and feel, the good news of the gospel. And if you're newer here, let me explain how we do this. We have four communion stations around the room. There's two up here in the front. There's also two here in the back. Um, And this one has, uh, in the back here, has gluten-free communion elements available. Um, If you need uh, gluten-free elements, they're there. And and I know, especially if this is one of your first times with us, these pews are really narrow. Uh, You've probably felt that, and and also a little lumpy at places, too. Um, But if you need to kind of climb over someone, uh, we're used to that here. If you need to bump into someone getting in and out, we're, we're totally used to that here, so so feel free. Uh, it's kind of family style in that way uh, here. Just climb over people if you need to. And, and with that, you don't have to be a member of, of Christ's community to partake in communion with us. If you have placed your trust in Jesus, you are welcome at his table. We would love to celebrate this meal with you. Um, if you haven't yet embraced Jesus and you're just sort of checking Jesus out or you're just kind of here because someone brought you and you're like, I'm not even sure what's totally what's going on with church. Um, We're so glad you're here. Let me say that again. And and just hope that you find this a safe place to explore and ask questions. And use this time to ask Jesus to show himself to you. He's pursuing you. He longs for a relationship with you. Ask him to help you watch for him. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is what Jesus offers us, the hope of new life on the basis of the forgiveness of sins. The resurrection is the death of fear. Come to the Lord's table when you're ready and taste and touch the good news of the gospel.